Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Easter weekend, which means that this week's program will feature a couple of exhibitions that have moved from where they were when we first featured them to new venues. First up will be my conversation with Museum of Fine Arts Boston curator Frederick Ilchman. We'll discuss Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, a broad look at the -the over-the-top luxury of European art and decorative arts in the pre-French Revolution decades. It debuted at the Kimball Art Museum last year, and it's on view at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco through May 28th. The show is built around the famed Giacomo Casanova, courtier, lothario, and schemester, whose memoir provides one of the best insights to an era in which those at the top of society milked their countries for Welsh and prestige, leaving little for others. The exhibition was co-curated by Ilchman, the National Gallery of Art's C.D. Dickerson, who started work on the show while he was at the Kimball, and the Clark Art Institute's Esther Bell, who started work on the show when she was at the Legion of Honor in the De Young in San Francisco. The catalog is absolutely terrific, a great read, a decadent look, and Amazon will sell it to you for $34. Next up, we'll hear from Scott Shields, the Crocker Art Museum curator who organized Richard Diebenkorn Beginnings, 1942-55. to It's now at the David Owsley Museum of Art at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. First up, Frederick Ilchman, after the break. Now on view at the Getty Center, an exhibition about one of the world's most iconoclastic exhibition makers. Harold Zaman, Museum of Obsessions, explores the Swiss museum curator's life and career, from his groundbreaking involvement with the avant-garde movements of the 1960s and 70s, to his global contemporary exhibitions of the 1990s and 2000s, to his personal reading of early 20th century modernism. Learn more about this Getty Research Institute show and all March events at the Center at getty.edu 360. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Now through April 15th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents three spectacular exhibitions from a stylistically diverse group of artists. All of Everything, Todd Oldham Fashion, presents dozens of intricately embellished garments from the multi-talented designer's fashion stint in the 1990s. William Kentridge's The Refusal of Time explores thought-provoking ideas about time through an immersive mix of sounds, movement, and stunning imagery. And from Austrian photomontage artist Anita Vitek comes her first-ever U.S. installation, Clip, on view in the Wexner Center lobby. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Frederick Ilchman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. So as we talk about Giacomo Casanova, I think we should start by laying out the international Europe, internationalist Europe of his time, a Europe that included to varying degrees, given that they fought a couple of wars against each other, the Ottoman Empire and Catherine the Great's Russia. As we begin to talk about Casanova and, and his time, what should we know about his Europe? Well, for a start, this is the Ancien Regime. This is before the French Revolution. Casanova's life 
uh, his life dates are 1725 to 1798, and virtually everything in the exhibition was made during his lifetime. But we're really focusing on the sort of sweet spot would be the mid 1700s, so mid 18th century, 1730s, 40s, 50s, early 60s. That's when he was most active, traveling, getting into all sorts of scrapes, making lots of money, losing it, that sort of thing. France was still a monarchy. Prussia was a monarchy. Russia was a monarchy. Italy was a series of smaller states, yet not unified. That doesn't happen for another century to the 1860s. And this kind of government based on courts where you had an important person surrounded by uh, sort of officials and flatterers and entourage and hangers-on and relatives, that was a primary source of income and jobs. And a lot of Casanova's travels are, in fact, prompted by looking for work. You know, he wanted a cushy appointment. He wanted to work for some top person. He tries to get to know the king and queen of England, George III. He gets, goes to Frederick the Great's Prussia, goes to Catherine the Great's Russia, looking for some sort of appointment, you know, to run a school, to supply industrial secrets, uh, to reform the calendar, to do a national lottery. He makes a pile of money in France, really developing the first national lottery in France and in the, in the 1750s. And we need to keep that in mind that he was living in a, in a culture that celebrated elitism, you know, being at the top. He's, but And that's why it's fascinating because he came from such a low birth himself. Casanova, probably illegitimate son, child of, of an actress and maybe a Venetian nobleman, nobleman uh, grew up in a poor street in a corner of Venice, was able to ingratiate himself through quick thinking and, frankly, lucky timing uh, to keep rising up the ladder. When things got difficult, he'd go on the move. When he was running out of money in Paris, he'd escape to London, leaving his creditors behind. Yeah, he's, he traveled over the course of his life, I think, 40,000 miles across Europe and England, right? It's an extraordinary number of miles. He's often on the go. He lives more in Venice than in any other place, but Paris was really a second home. And uh, there is a kind of escapism and novelty of the new and... Uh, He loved eating and dining well and lavishly. These are things that we can understand right now. I mean, it's our culture of foodies and posting your vacation photos and, you know, inventing a persona and moving through life in a grand way. These are things that we tend to admire now in the 21st century that Casanova was among the first to really cultivate in a big way and certainly among the first to write it all down. And that's a key thing about this exhibition. He's not the only person that led a scandalous or amusing or daring life in the 18th century, not by any means, but he wrote one of the world's longest autobiographies. And that's a real source text for all aspects of 18th century studies, uh, but also the really inspiring text for our exhibition to recreate Casanova's visual and cultural world. And so because this is the rare museum exhibition built around a non-artist, I think what you're saying is that the combination of his, his travels and experiences and that text you just mentioned make him a great figure to hang uh, a story, a visual story of the period on. Exactly. And he, uh, the important thing is this is not a biographical show per se, in, even though the exhibition uses the chronology of Casanova's life and the geography, the places he visits, as significant signposts or areas to pull out a theme. But it's not full of memorabilia. You know, it, you know, the guy was always on the move. His library was broken up. His uh, 
he really lives on in the memory of of the people who knew him. But it's it, so, so it's it's not like oh this is his walking stick and this is his eyeglasses and you know this is a painting he had on the wall. No, it's really about the sumptuous and fascinating interiors. That's one thing we put a lot of effort into is recreating some of these interiors in a general sense, combinations of painting and pastel, sculpture, decorative arts, furniture, and doing these in these uh, ensembles that were the intentions. In the Rococo period, in the middle of the uh, 18th century, there was a greater than the sum of its parts mentality. And this kind of art, we think, doesn't impress people today, in part because things are seen in isolation. And to create these vignettes uh, gives it a lot more, restores a lot of the initial uh, original power of these works. And then we take it up a notch by also including three different groups of costume figures. And this is something I'm terribly excited about. This is not costume per se, like woman's dress, man's suit, you know, old shoes, buckles, etc. But it's these are mannequins acting out a scene inspired vaguely by Casanova's lifetime. And uh, these really bring you into the sense of interiors because in many ways the greatest furniture are well-dressed guests, right, who glide through your spaces. Casanova was... was very attentive to the, the propaganda value of having a well-cut suit, that sort of thing. And so within the exhibition, in our three venues, we're, we will, uh, we're de demonstrating the visit to a convent in Venice. This is the kind of visiting hours where a girl who'd been parked in a convent uh, by her parents against her will before she gets married, she has a gentleman caller there. Another visit is the scene that takes place in France where we have the levee, which is you know the morning toilette, which is a sort of semi-social event where a woman would get dressed and put on makeup and read, write letters, drink coffee, and chat with visitors. And then, and that's a, a beautiful costumes in that. And these are again, these are mannequins acting out something. Uh, they're not just standing there stiffly in a call, kind of Hall of the Presidents aspect. And the third one is a drunken card party uh, in Hogarthy in London, where um, one card players accuse the other one other one of uh, cheating at cards and he will literally have a card up its sleeve the cheater that is in the in the preface to the catalog you and your co-curators write that the art of the time can best be understood as part of a total visual environment and i think you just just described a few and maybe could you draw a connection between these tableaus you've created and what we see in paintings by artists such as pietro longhi the conception of the 18th century is a is a unified work of art, and the sinuous lines, the expensive materials, the, the sense of breaking corners, juxtapositions of textures, all these things you need to have combinations of, of works together. They play off each other. There, it's, it's an overall aesthetic. It is interesting, though, that paintings of interiors tend not to focus on these kind of details. A lot of things were small scale. We're going to have beautiful snuff boxes and terrines for dining, and we have gorgeous you know shaving sets and perfume and toilette service and there's so much there but a lot of it's small scale and a painting by an artist like Longhi the Venetian 18th century painter he's very good on human nature and the uncomfortable aspects of social situations whether it be a music lesson or a friar who comes to hear confessions but is basically using the excuse to stare down the décolletage of one of the women in, in the painting. And there's a lot of social commentary there. And he gives us, Longhi gives us some sense of these big windowless interiors in a Venetian palazzo, the, in, the smaller rooms being covered with beautiful fabrics, but not a lot of sense of the furniture itself. And even if he does, the chairs and tables, you don't realize that some of the most beautiful aspects of an interior will be quite small things, candelabra, snuff boxes, uh, the articles of the table.
but the, the, the thing we want to make clear is that even though this is an exhibition of a whole series of big name artists, like the painters Fragonard and Boucher and Canaletto and Tiepolo and Longhi and Natier or Reynolds or the printmaker Piranese, that the decorative arts are on the same level as the paintings. This is an exhibition that's going to have world-class furniture, silver, porcelain, etc., jewelry, and these are absolute masterpieces. And so, and that's part of our part of our hope is that someone who might not be wary of an exhibition of masterpieces of mid-18th-century art will indeed be intrigued by the idea of Casanova and the seduction of Europe. Yeah, one of the things I got about reading the catalog is that paintings by by somebody like Longhi might give us people and their interplay in the physical objects that are otherwise in the exhibition, because obviously you can't have people in fabulous 18th century dress sitting in 18th century chairs in a 21st century museum. But the, but the paintings like Longhi's might give us an idea of, you know, an exaggerated idea perhaps, but an idea of how Casanova's courtier-focused world functioned. So to the extent Casanova did do anything that was visually engaging, I guess he did a little bit of what we would now call interior decorating? Yes, particularly when he was in, in, in France. He was trying to run a fabric business and also knew that you needed to impress. I mean, when he was a sort of boy and was allowed to go up the staircase to the Piano Nobile of a major Venetian palazzo, like the Malapiero or the Bragadine Palazzo, you would realize just from the level of detail and an overall sumptuousness that this is how you impressed people. Your power and influence is directly related to the big show that you put on with your interiors, with your costume, uh, with your events. So he did this himself. He spent, he had a lot of money in Paris, but then spent it all, escape his creditors, his business of, 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 of painted silks went bust. But the idea is that beautiful textures also add, you know, it's another kind of opulence. And this is something that you cannot get from a photograph uh, to see real cloth, real costumes from the 18th century is just quite extraordinary. You know, he was primarily a literary figure. He considered himself a major writer. My, that's kind of putting it generously. But he, Casanova corresponded with all sorts of literary figures, right? He was particularly people like uh, Voltaire and Rousseau. But he also was known for reciting poems and making up witty verse uh, in several languages. He loved literary gatherings. So he was not really a patron of the arts per se, though he certainly would have owned smaller pictures, portrait miniatures, snuff boxes. Some of these would have been sentimental gifts, some romantic gifts. But he was very much on the go, and that makes it hard to, to you, know, you know, there is no real Casanova house. He stayed in various places, but uh, uh, he was more tied to his wish to experience the world, the wish to fall in love again and again, the wish to be taken seriously as a thinker. Those sort of things motivated him more than uh, actually devising, you know, the beautiful house or palazzo that so many art patrons over the generations have done. The, the, the key thing in this, though, is that when he starts writing his memoirs towards the end of his life, he doesn't even get to the end of, of his life. But it's so detailed. Uh, that really is a masterpiece. And we've seen this thorough mind, this person who is very sensitive, a great judge of human character, incredibly witty, as a kind of ideal visitor. He's the kind of perfect viewer in the 18th century. And the kind of person, if you were a politician or any kind of ruling family, the kind of person you really wanted to impress was the sophisticated cosmopolitan outsider, someone like Casanova. So we've used that as a, as a kind of cue as well. You know, thinking about and reading about 
this period of European history, which for a certain class of people was was somewhat borderless and extravagant and opulent and a very what we would now call a 1% oriented society. When you and your co-conspirators started talking about this show five or seven or eight years ago, were you consciously trying to make a show or engage ideas that seemed okran in today's America or indeed in today's Western world? Well, I mean, I think 1% is not even strong enough. I mean, Kazanov was fascinating. He, he pretended to be an aristocrat. He traveled under various assumed names. He had he stylized or styled himself as a as a nobleman, wasn't at all. Um, then was once in a while called out for that. It was, it's quite interesting, kind of, you know, kind of a internet shaming, you know, exposed that sort of thing. You know, we we make quite clear at the beginning that we're not endorsing his way of life. I mean, he was a he was a you know a cheat, a scoundrel, pretty frequently, sometimes treated women terribly. You know, that he figured a way from time to time to game the system and actually get very do quite well and move in high circles. Don't begrudge him that per se. You know, it's it's the sort of thing when you go to Versailles. And you look around, you say, wow, now I see why there was a French Revolution, right? And, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of that in this. You know, it's, it's, it's not for nothing that in the 1780s you have big movements for political reform that culminate in the storming of the Bastille and the uh, capture and execution of the French king. That happens at the same time as this ideal of neoclassical art. Ancient Greek and Roman styles come to the fore, and the sense is... You know, that, that this was a nobler, more literary and intellectual time, and there's a kind of timelessness about it. And of course, then that goes out the window, celebrating Greek democracy, when you have Napoleon declaring himself emperor and styling himself as an ancient Roman emperor. But, but, but you know, that, that's all. I mean, Casanova doesn't die till 1798, so he would have known all this news. It would have horrified him, you know, the collapse of these of the the French monarchy and the and the th threats to peace, but by then he was really living in the past. I mean, and we made very clear as we were selecting objects for the exhibition, even though that we had the rules, everything from his lifetime, that is from 1725 to 1798. By the time you get to the 1780s, it just seems like a different world, and uh, and that was a it was clear. We just assemble bulletin boards and piles of photographs and look at things that we were contemplating for the exhibition. And by that time, they just seemed seemed too different. They didn't seem, although they were part of his lifetime, they didn't seem in the same way part of his world. The book, the catalog that accompanies this show is just absolutely one of the best such things I've seen in recent years and read in recent years. It's it's really terrific. Did you and and, and your co-conspirators think of this book or catalog differently than a normal museum kind of scholarly catalog? Yes, we definitely thought of this as different from the standard exhibition catalog. Part of it was the material is heterogeneous. I mean, we're really literally all over the map, right? There's things from all parts of parts of Europe, many different media, and the standard formula of a page of text on the left for a single work of art that's reproduced on the right of an opening just wouldn't work. I mean, we have hundreds of pieces in the show really. It's it's quite a quite extraordinary just how many how many things are are, are in this exhibition. A lot of them small format you don't need to have, you know, every chair or snuff box or, or, or print be illustrated and described. The main thing was to make it a book that was a book, not, not as a catalog. And you even notice the format of the book. I mean, if you see it thick but not particularly large otherwise, it feels like it could be a really good novel. And that was the idea. His life is a great read, his own 
autobiographies, memoirs is an amazing read, though, super long and beyond uh, most people's uh, capacity. You know, uh, if, if you can do one of the 10 volumes, you've done pretty well. But but the, the, the idea was then to use linked topics and we alternate between a theme and then a place. And what is interesting is how easily Casanova flows into these different topics, the hazards and practicalities of travel in the 18th century, or what do images of art, particularly French art, those frothy paintings by Fragonard and Boucher, what do they say about attitudes towards romance, sex, heartbreak in the uh, 18th century? A beautiful chapter on clothing, uh, how getting dressed and undressed, and distinctions that we find very hard to understand now, but were fundamental to the social structure back then. Dining, whole section on Casanova in Eastern Europe, which is fascinating, that a man from Venice who called himself really uh, honorary Frenchman ended up in uh, rural Bohemia uh, in a uh, small little principality, a little castle north of Prague. You know, fascinating way to come down in the world in the end. But the point was, these work well as essays, not as exhibition catalog entries. So the point was to weave in discussion of the individual objects in, into each one of these texts. So if you go in the footnotes, you'll find information about when it was made or bibliography or questions about its its iconography or interpretation, but it's not a work-by-work work exploration. Rather, it's about these big themes about the Paris of Casanova or Casanova is a man of letters. And these the illustrations are both guiding the discussion and illustrating it. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on champagne and oysters. I mean, it's just an enormously fun book. Finally, I got to think that anyone who builds a show around Casanova has a favorite story about him, be it from his memoirs or from somewhere else. And so I'm guessing you do, and I'm hoping you'll tell it. Casanova, in a low period of his life, is treating people really badly. He is pushing too many boundaries, and it's the sort of spring into summer of 1755. He is hanging out with low-life types. He's playing pranks. We know this because there is a spy that the Venetian state, uh, that, which is really a police state, the Venetian government wants people to observe social norms and not get into trouble. And the spy trails him. And it says that, that he has been indulging in alchemy. Casanova has also been spending time with Freemasons. He is frequenting the homes of married and unmarried women and, quote, women of another sort, which means prostitutes. But the big thing that Casanova did to get in trouble was not that he was making ripping off foreigners at the gambling table or that he was running around too much with women was actually his heretical comments. He apparently wrote a loud, uh, read, read aloud at a tavern, long poem in Venetian dialect mocking Christianity and Christians. And this was a poem of his own composition and he was getting lots of laughs and Venetian authorities thought this was just too much. And on the morning of July 26, he was woken up in his, in his house in Venice by a whole group of magistrates and they arrested him. It didn't help that Casanova's library had all sorts of books of free-thinking ideas and wide range of, of interests that were seen as suspicious as well. So he was rowed to the, the new prison, which is right in Venice next to the Plaza Ducale uh, off St. Mark's Square. He crossed by foot the Bridge of Sighs and then was put into the Plaza Ducale. And this was for a man who loved freedom and travel and expressing himself and skirting the law. This was too much to be utterly captured, no sign of when he would be released. And so then Casanova makes it his mission to force all his mental powers onto getting out of there. And this is a wonderful story that unfolds over a number of months 
But the great thing he does is on one of the sort of recesses where he could walk along under the roof of the Palazzo Ducale, the enormous roof, and get a little exercise break, he finds an iron spike. It's basically, you know, like a giant nail. And he's able to uh, bring, secretes that in his costume, his clothing, and brings it back to his cell. He's able to sharpen it into a spike. And then through a whole lot of crazy stories by sending letters and kind of codes to his various neighbors, uh, people of, in other figures imprisoned for political reasons in the same set of cells, they're able to break out. They clamber up onto the roof of the Palazzo Ducale and nearly lose everything. They're able to let themselves down in through a sequence of rooms. And then finally, on November 1st, 1756, they're able to uh, get almost down to the ground level. And then suddenly they go by, they find a door they can't break through. They lean out uh, the window and having, you know, brought with them their clothes when they first been imprisoned. And a guard downstairs sees a man in a fancy hat with a plume on it and assumes, oh dear, this is a Venetian nobleman who, you know, kind of fell asleep and got locked in there overnight. And so the guard of the Palazzo Ducale opens it and Casanova can escape to freedom. And it is a final thing. It's wonderful. He calls for a gondola and announces very loudly where he wants to be rowed to. And then as soon as he's out of earshot, he tells the gondolier, instead, go for a different place on the Venetian mainland to drop me off. And so that's a, it's a wonderful story with, with all sorts of fun episodes, including delivering the spike from one cell to another. He hides it, was going to hide it in a big Bible. He gets his jailer to buy for him a Bible. The Bible is large, but not big enough to hide the spike. So, so what he does is he asks his jailer, he wants to make a big bowl of macaroni. It's some kind of pasta. Maybe it's a, it's gnocchi or something, but coat it with cheese and butter, a giant thing. And to, to put the, the, this big bowl, which is going to go to another prisoner as a kind of gift to use the book as a tray, which of course means the jailer can't poke around and see if there's a spike inside because he's too busy not dropping the pasta. Anyway, so lots of stories that are humorous and Casanova's retelling of this story made him a hero, really, in France and outside of Venice, of course. It causes his exile from Venice. He can't go back for uh, 20 years. But then the book he writes about his escape from the prisons of Venice is a wonderful set piece and becomes a key part of the much longer autobiography he writes towards the end of his life. Absolutely fantastic. Frederick Ilchman, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure. Please come visit Casanova. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Courtside Photographs by Bill Bamberger, an exhibition of vibrant color photographs of a variety of basketball hoops around the world. From Maine to Florida and Rwanda to Mexico, the hoops indicate places both where basketball is played and where communities and relationships are built. They are objects that often shape and reflect those communities. As a part of many diverse landscapes, the hoops become integral elements of each location's unique narrative. The artist, Bill Bamberger, is a resident of Durham, North Carolina, and an instructor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. On view through May 13th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu.
Welcome back. My next guest is Scott Shields, the Crocker Art Museum curator whose Richard Diebenkorn Beginnings, 1942-55, to is now at the David Owsley Museum of Art at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. The exhibition, which was co-organized with the Richard Diebenkorn Foundation, looks at work Diebenkorn made before turning to figuration, work he made while living and working in Berkeley, California. It reveals Diebenkorn working through artists with whom his work is not typically associated, such as John Marin and Arshile Gorky. The exhibition is accompanied by an excellent, well-illustrated catalog that mines Diebenkorn's archive to find a surprising range of influences. Amazon offers it for about $40. From Ball State, the show will travel to Portland, Oregon, to the Weissman Museum at Pepperdine in Malibu, California, and finally to the Academy Art Museum in Eastern Maryland. Scott Shields, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. In the last few years, American art museums have been burrowing into the Diebenkorn oeuvre to present big, major, splashy exhibitions of various periods of his output. So we've seen shows of the Berkeley years and the Ocean Park paintings and so on. This is a really different kind of show, kind of a big missing link. How so? I think the exhibition starts, well, it starts so much earlier, as the title implies, beginnings, but it really shows you where he came from. And my goal uh, was to really look at how he got to be the artist he he was. And you see that even in the earlier works, you can go from one to the next to the next, and you watch him evolve. And so sometimes that's not as, as splashy. It becomes splashy as he becomes a mature painter. But early on, he was really working his way through art history. And that's the absolute surprise and joy of this show. This is This is the rare example where I get to see a show on walls before taping with with the curator and what jumped off off of the gallery walls to me was Diebenkorn working through some artists that I hadn't expected to see him working through I've written about Diebenkorn for for 15 years we've done a bunch of Diebenkorn shows and I think young artists in particular will get a lot out of the show because it really shows an artist figuring out who he is and what he wants to make and I have a couple examples that I want to talk through. But first, is there anyone that, as you started working on the show, that it surprised you to see Diebenkorn working through? There were actually several surprises. You know, he went through Brock. John Marin was a big influence when he was in the military, and he was looking at John Marin at the Phillips Collection, and you can really feel that. I think the biggest surprise for me, though, was an artist named Hassel Smith. And Hassel Smith was a terrific painter, but not not a household name these days. But he was so influential on Diebenkorn that Diebenkorn left California for a while. And he said, I had to get away from that influence. And so that was a big kind of aha moment for me, that it wasn't, you know, some of the ones that you might think of, like Clifford Still, who was also an influence for a while. Matisse, obviously, was a big influence based on the show that just happened at SF MoMA. But Hassel Smith, here's this artist that most of us don't readily know that well. And and for Diebenkorn, it was a big a big deal to kind of get out from under him. So we're going to come back to Marin because I think one of the just absolute did-not-see-it-coming <laughs> surprises of the show for me was the John Marin link. But I'm really glad you brought up Hassel Smith. Hassel Smith is you know, a known figure on the West Coast to those of us who, who grew up in San Francisco, especially, you know, we know him as a, as a, as a painter and, and, and teacher and a really fine abstract painter. I think on the East Coast, the best place to see Hassel Smith's when they're installed is at the Hirshhorn. 
What did Diebenkorn see in Hassel Smith? And is there an example or two of a Diebenkorn work in the show that, that you think particularly engages Smith? I think the works that come out of, during his Sausalito period when he was painting his abstract expressionist paintings there, they have some Hassel Smith in them. They also have de Kooning's line sort of woven in there. But the New Mexico period paintings also still have evocations of, of Smith. And then he, you know, eventually moves moves beyond beyond Hassel, but that was a big thing for him. De Kooning as well, he, in 1948, had looked at an issue of Partisan Review, read an important essay by Clement Greenberg, and looked at some illustrations of de Kooning's paintings. And that offered him, with Hassel, this sort of departure from what had been kind of Clifford Still-dominated teaching at the California School of Fine Arts where he was. One of the really neat things about this show is how many of Diebenkorn's drawings, ink on paper mostly, that, that the show and the catalog uh, both include. And I was surprised by that. I don't, maybe I shouldn't have been, but a lot of black ink, a lot of emphasis on line in those drawings from the, the late 40s and early 50s. And I guess what we're seeing in those is a lot of Hasselsmith. I think so. And the linearity and the line in particular, a lot of that is also de Kooning. So it's kind of a combination of the two. And I think what he gets from Hasselsmith are sometimes the line, I think this, the little bit of a sense of humor that Hasselsmith has that a lot of other artists did not was appealing to Diebenkorn. It's not not necessary to take yourself quite so seriously. Um, so you could be a little lyrical and free. Um, I think that comes out of him. I think the de Kooning relationship is, is, is really important too. I think of the, you know, I think the three painters that Diebenkorn engages most in the first, you know, two or three decades of his career are Matisse, Picasso, especially Picasso and Albuquerque and, and de Kooning. Are there, Specific examples in the show of things, that, of places where we can see Diebenkorn learning things from de Kooning, because I think there are quite a few. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's de Kooning really starts to factor into the late 1948-1949 Sausalito paintings and the, and his use of line. Which there's a moment that I hope people can feel in the show where he goes from really kind of plotting things out in advance you know, preconceptualizing to attacking the canvas directly or the work or the paper. And you can feel that shift where he becomes improvisational. And he does that to a degree, you know, using some of what he takes from de Kooning's line, a little bit of Hassel Smith coming through. But it's also just his approach that he's just going straight at it without preconception, without any sketches, without his straight edge, if he was using one before, and just, just sort of attacking. And you, you can feel that that moment. I hope people go through the show in a certain order because I want them to really sort of feel that aha that I know Diebenkorn must have felt. And I think if you if you look hard, you will you will feel that as well. There are three paintings that might animate this, and we'll try to have all of them on, on manpodcast.com. In the show, there's a 1945 watercolor. It's a vertical. It's a landscape, green hills. There's kind of a blue, light blue road running from the middle of the watercolor into the foreground right. And it's a fairly standard thing with space represented fairly traditionally. Diebenkorn is not yet smacking things up against, smacking elements in the painting up against the picture plane. 
but by 49, he is. He, he's radically flattened his space and, and enormously abstracted away landscape or anything else representational. And you show the 1949 painting in the catalog with a de Kooning that's at MoMA that suggests how Diebenkorn might have learned both how to reorganize something, but also how to abstract away from from landscape. Yeah, and it's it's really that moment where he truly becomes an abstract expressionist, and it's it's all based in improvisation. And he would work, and then he'd back up and look at what he was doing, and then go in and go at it again. And also this sense that happens throughout the rest of his career is this pentimenti of that he wants you to see what has been there before, and he lets his revisions remain enough so you can trace his process and feel like you're painting with him to a degree. Let's shift to John Marin. Maybe the biggest surprise of the show for me was, <laughs> and still is, seeing a Diebenkorn watercolor or two that are basically John Marin's. Where did Diebenkorn encounter Marin, and why did he find Marin useful or of interest? So when Diebenkorn was in the Marines, he got uh, transferred to Quantico, and he would, on the weekends, go to New York City or, or most often Washington, D.C., and go to the Phillips Collection. And there he encountered John Marin, and the Phillips family was a very big supporter of Marin, so he had plenty to look at, and you can really feel some of those Marin paintings he was looking at coming through directly into the paintings he was doing of the military bases he was on. And the other thing that I think was important about Marin is that this whole time, Diebenkorn's reading Green, Clement Greenberg's criticisms, and Greenberg is describing Marin as the most important American painter, and he's describing Matisse as the most important painter. And so I don't think it's accidental that Diebenkorn is looking so hard at these artists because he's being told these are the most important artists in the world and you should be looking at them. And so he does. And he he's pays close attention to Greenberg throughout all this period. And sometimes you feel it almost a couple of weeks after the article comes out, you can feel Diebenkorn trying it out. There's a 1945 Diebenkorn watercolor in, in the show that is particularly Marin-esque. Do you think there are things he learned from Marin that, that stay in the work into the early 50s, or did he move through it pretty quickly? I think there's elements that, that stay from Marin, and then certain things that go away entirely. In the watercolors that he does, and in in the washes and the sense of overlapping planes, a lot of that stays behind. One of the other things that early on that he picks up from Marin is that he floats the composition within the center of the paper sometimes even makes a painted frame around it. When abstract expressionism takes place, the idea of a frame was just intolerable. And so you had to like engage with the edges. And David Corn himself later says that he felt that he and his fellow artists felt that it was a cop-out to have this kind of idea of a frame. So that that disappears. But there is there are some elements of, of Marin that I think, you know, stay with him, especially in the way he handles overlap and, and, and translucency and being able to see one shape below another, which goes back to that idea of pentimenti and painting and painting out, but not entirely. Yeah, often in Marin watercolors you can see one color on top of another, uh, Marin showing his work, if you will. And that's certainly something that, that stays in, in Diebenkorn until the end. And maybe the one other thing that the show got me thinking about wondering if, if Diebenkorn took for Marin was 
use of diagonals that don't make it all the way across all the way across a rectangle. In in Marin watercolors, you know, there's almost never a, a, a diagonal that leads us into a painting in the traditional way. It usually kind of stops before it seems like it needs to. <laughs> and in Berkeley and Ocean Park paintings, especially, especially the Berkeley abstractions, Stephen Coyne does that over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and the Ocean Park ones too becomes the diagonal becomes such an important thing. And even in the in the early abstract expressionist pieces, and depending on where he lived, the the diagonal could have a have a great effect. And he'd kind of move from you know an uprightness to a horizontality to an uprightness in in some of his paintings that the diagonal made a big difference in in terms of the feeling of, of depth and space. Another one of the surprises in this show for me, I guess, and it probably shouldn't have been a surprise, was seeing how much Gorky Diebenkorn was working through. I can't imagine he could have seen a lot of Gorky on 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 the West Coast. He must have been getting it through the art magazines. What does he What does he see in Gorky that he finds useful? I think the sort of floating forms and color comes from Gorky, and he was able to see. Gorky in the East when he was there, and I think looked at him pretty hard. So that does that does factor in, and but I, I see it in the shapes, and the way that they're sort of floating, and then also and they're sometimes connected with line, and I think that a lot of that factors into what Diebenkorn does. And connected with thick black line, you know, as if both providing some architecture for the painting that, and and, and fighting against architecture in the painting with the color. Right. And the and the color is sometimes hard to like. And you know, Diebenkorn was so good at color and such an innately, you know, sensitive to color that he had to, you know, sort of mitigate the the beauty and because he didn't want his paintings to be pretty ever. He was taught that that shouldn't shouldn't happen. But I think he was throughout his career sort of mitigating his inherent tendency towards beauty. I think in the first gallery or so of the show, there are a number of paintings in which Diebenkorn uses the same, all against one wall, if I remember right, where in which Diebenkorn uses the same very gross yellowish-brown color, usually in the same place, usually in the lower left of, of the canvas, and you can kind of feel him using it in the way you just described to kind of mess up and, and deprettify some of the other colors in the painting, which which could sometimes, as as with the reds, be kind of jewel-like. Yeah, he did that both through color and also he would introduce awkward forms. He he liked awkwardness, and so whenever it was becoming too facile and too polished, you know, he would try to reintroduce awkwardness, and that could be through form or through colors that were harder to like. And also in his occasional return to sort of monochromatic neutral tones and monochromatic paintings within this otherwise body of colorful paintings you know you occasionally turn back to more neutral tones just to kind of keep it varied because he he was just really he really liked color so he kind of had to battle against that i think throughout a lot of his career they're all from about 1945 and they have these kind of still-like forms being built up from the bottom center of the canvas with elements extending what do you and I think we'll have images of them on, on manpodcast.com. What do you think Diebenkorn is taking from still at the very end of the war? And does he hold on to it or does he let go? You know, I think it's it's a sort of distinct 
period. And it's there's some watercolors and also oils, and they were kind of 47, 48. He had seen a show of, of Stills paintings when he returned from New York. He went to New York because he won a grant in aid, a Bender grant in aid, and he went and he stayed in Woodstock because New York City was too expensive. And when he came back from that after almost a year, he saw a still show at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. And he says, the first time I went, I was completely put off by it. I didn't know what to think about it. But the second time I went, it started to come together for me. Immediately after that, his paintings start to have elements of still in them. And these are the same paintings that he showed at the, he had his own Legion of Honor show in 1948, which for a 26-year-old artist to have a show at the California Palace of the Legion of Honor in San Francisco was a very big deal. It's a big deal if you're 80 years old, but he was 26 and hadn't even finished an undergraduate degree. He does these for a short period of time. I think that there was a couple of reasons that he moved past Still. One, his mentor was David Park, and David Park and Clifford Still didn't get along. They were competitors at, at the California School of Fine Arts, and they each had their own camp of followers. And you could follow one or the other, but it was hard to follow both because they were so at odds. And then Still invited Diebenkorn to his studio to see his paintings, which was a big kind of you know mark of respect. Diebenkorn went and Still said, I'd like to see what you were working on. And then so Still comes over to Diebenkorn's studio, and they were supposed to have lunch afterwards. And Still says, well, I think that's a pretty nice painting. And Demon Gordon's always very humble and self-effacing, says something like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm not sure the colors quite work, which for Still was like the idea of colors working was, you know, for something old-fashioned art teachers would say. And so he put his hat on and left. And that was kind of the end of that. <laughs> and, and, you know, at that same moment, that's when he gets his partisan review and discovers de Kooning. And it's also at that moment where he starts to attack the canvas or the work on paper directly. And I think that, you know, it still after that was a limited factor in what he what he tried to do. He found a new he found a new master in, in de Kooning and um said, you know, I'm kind of done with still and I I don't think that, that meeting helped matters. It was a pretty clear end end of that relationship. And there was never one much to begin with. And the other thing that's, I think, important to remember is that Diebenkorn did not ever study with Still. You know, when he came in, he was studying with David Park, and then he gets his Bender grant in aid and goes to New York. And when he comes back from New York, he becomes a teacher himself. So he doesn't get to study under, under Still. He really learned abstraction on his own. In the catalog, there is a photograph Diebenkorn made in 1962, which is a little after most of the show, is suggested of him thinking about something. And it's a picture Diebenkorn takes out of out of a plane window or the bottom of a plane or something like that. Also in, in the catalog, you reproduce a 1945 water uh, painting of a landscape by Clay Spohn, who, who famously taught in, in San Francisco. Are you suggesting, hinting, pointing to that Diebenkorn was interested in this aerial view or viewpoint right almost from the start? Pretty much. You know, when, when I first encountered those photographs, because there are several of them at the archives at the Diebenkorn Foundation, of him taking photos of the landscape, I was just blown away. I thought, oh my God, they look a lot like his paintings. And I didn't know that he did that. And so that was sort of a, a smoking gun. But there's a quote that when he was in New Mexico and coming back to California, he was on a flight. And he said that 
pilot flew very low so we could see the landscape. And it was a commercial flight. He was sort of incredulous, but he said it turned my head around in terms of seeing the landscape. And he's so much of what I was seeing was what I wanted to do. And so I think that that absolutely factors in. And he, he admits it and that these aerial views of landscape. And then Clay, Spahn's work, he, when he goes to New Mexico, he also kind of returns to landscape. And so there's something about the evocation of the Western landscape that really impacts Diebenkorn. You can start to feel it, but it, it's not just him. It happens to other artists as well. And that's, that's why that one's in there. Because they both end up in a similar part of the world doing doing things that have strong relationship, and they were staying in touch as well. Yeah, the, the first interest in aerial, you know, painting from that point of view or making pictures, whether photographic or otherwise, that I knew of of Diebenkorn doing was in 1968 when the Bureau of Reclamation flew him up over some of its water projects in Arizona. But yeah, this catalog makes it, and and and, and the essays in it and the images in it make a pretty convincing case that Diebenkorn was thinking about aerial viewpoints in the early 50s, which gives us all a lot of neat things. Yeah, and I found I found the quote. He says, I guess it was the combination of desert and agriculture that really turned me on because it has so many things I wanted in my paintings. Of course, the earth's skin itself had presence. I mean, it was like all a flat design and everything was usually in the form of an irregular grid. That's that's pretty good description hard hard to argue with that yeah and it was it was nearby in in the southern central valley where western style industrial agriculture making the desert bloom was born and even coin certainly would have flown over it and, and driven through it on his way to new mexico and, and maybe even on his way to urbana yeah and he, he also says and phyllis also said his wife she's said the reason that he chose new mexico for graduate school was because he liked the landscape wasn't that he chose the teachers, although he liked Raymond Johnson quite a bit. But that wasn't why he went there. He went there because of the of the landscape and liking that. And to get that GI Bill money. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't hurt. <laughs> Scott Shields, thanks so much. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.